Hi all, Jacob Austin here, owner of QS.Zone, and welcome to episode 17 of the Subcontractors Blueprint. This is the show where subcontractors will learn how to ensure profitability, improve cash flow, and grow their business. Today's episode number 17 is going to be about retrofitting. This is the phrase that seems to be on the up at the moment. It's not something I'd heard of until fairly recently. But in spite of not having heard of it, it is something that I've done on several occasions throughout my career. So we're going to look at today what it means, what the overall ambitions of it are, and what are some of the pitfalls to help you try and avoid them should you find yourself on a retrofitting scheme. So what is it? Well, somewhat similar to when you were a teenager fitting that new stereo and speaker system into your first car... Retrofitting is the introduction of new materials, new products and technologies into an existing building which didn't have those features before. So picture ripping out that cassette stereo system and replacing it with a high-tech headset with Bluetooth technology. It's become a particularly prevalent thing and I think going forwards there's going to be a hell of a lot more of it because of the introduction of the government's national targets for the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. So you've probably heard of the Climate Change Act 2008 that was amended in 2019 and part of that legislation is that the national building stock in the UK achieves net zero emission status. That is an outlandish target to set. And it's not just a carbon reduction that we're targeting with this legislation, but the reduction of all greenhouse gas emissions associated with energy use. And this means taking it down to the lowest possible level. This has also resulted in some trickle-out legislation, such as the energy efficiency upgrades of all rental properties to EPC rating C. But in September of 2023... Rishi Sunak announced a softening of the targets around energy efficiency, which included deferring the ban on new oil-fired boilers, this going back from 2026 to 2035, and the abolition of that legislation requiring a minimum EPC for all rental properties. And landlords up and down the country breathe a sigh of relief. There is a bit of clarification required because... Many of the registered providers of housing association plots, what we might know as social homes or the modern equivalent of council housing, are intending on carrying on with their scheme of upgrading their homes and it's unclear as to whether the government intends for them to still achieve that EPC C rating that they'd previously set out. There is also going to be a further review by the fantastically named Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, where the intention is to reset targets with a view to achieving the net zero by 2050, perhaps in a more soft and gradual fashion. The financial implication of that is absolutely huge, and it may well be the public purse that has to stump up some of the bill for that. Although at the time of recording this episode, the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund is currently closed to applications. I am a little bit torn on whether that is a good thing or a bad thing, really. On the one hand, on the one hand, providing more energy-efficient homes to some of the most needy people in the country is certainly a good thing. But on the flip side of that, the taxpayer is actually paying to upgrade homes that belong to large organisations, which increase the value of those properties. But what does the taxpayer get back out of it? 
Anyway, I'll park my cynicism on that there. So what does retrofitting mean in the current sort of guise and definition? We're talking of all manner of things that will improve the energy efficiency of buildings. That might be small scale activities like fitting energy efficient light bulbs through to state-of-the-art heating systems and then the wholesale insulation and fabric improvement of buildings. So all of that sounds like a great idea in theory. But there are some questions to be asked and answered on just what buildings this is acceptable in, what it's going to do to the character of some of our homes, and how effectively it can be implemented. Thinking about, say, applying insulation into things like characterful cottages, those ones with the low ceilings and the characterful little oak beams supporting the upper floors. I'm curious as to how that's going to work without overly affecting the exterior feel and look of the property. But at the same time, if you try to fit insulation internally, you've got to struggle on because you're already working in tight spaces. Some of the rooms in these kind of cottages places are already small. And can you really afford to lose inches of it all the way around the perimeter to improve the warmth? One of the most simple applications is just to fit insulation board or slab to the external face of a building and render over it to give it a waterproof, weatherproof finish. But does that mean in 20 years time we're all going to be living in a variation of the same bland white box? Imagine taking your missus to look at houses and her complaining that the 200th property in a row has got no curb appeal because it's just a big white box. Some of the common themes of retrofitting projects are things like insulation and improving the continuity of insulation to remove thermal bridging, improving the air tightness of the building, taking steps to reduce condensation. Of course, when you are insulating and making buildings more tight, you're then starting to create a problem that there's potentially more moisture in the air. So that needs to be taken into account. Reducing overheating. If you can reduce, say, solar gain in buildings, then you can reduce the need to rely on air conditioning units. Replacing old fossil fuel hungry heating systems with either low or zero carbon systems. And a key part is improving the controls of those systems so that you're not heating parts of buildings which aren't in use. And if you're improving the sensitivity of things like thermostats, you're able to maintain a tighter band of the right temperature. Then there's other things such as local renewable energy sources, ground source heat pumps, air source heat pumps, solar and wind power systems, and things such as grey water heat recovery or grey water reuse in general. And there's many other things that this might cover. So in effect, we're talking of ways to improve existing buildings. And when you're working on an existing building, item number one has always got to be asbestos. Given everybody seems to have mandatory asbestos awareness training on an annual basis, we should probably all have an idea of what to do with asbestos. But just a reminder, for any building built pre-2000, there must be a refurbishment and demolition asbestos survey that applies whether it's a residential building or a commercial building or whatever. If you are given a management survey or an even older survey, a type 1, 2 or 3 survey, those are no longer acceptable and you may be breaking the law if you're working on a building without a current survey. So a management survey essentially is a walk around a building and a look at anything that looks like it might be asbestos 
and it's identified in a report. It's not intrusive and therefore it's not sufficient for you to rely on to confirm that there is or isn't any asbestos where you're working because much of the asbestos within buildings is hidden and we're talking of it can be anywhere. Little packers, sandwiched within doors, hidden behind plasterboard, it's within all sorts of ceiling tiles, floor products, lagging and insulation, Artex, you name it, somebody has put asbestos in it. And remembering that depending on the type of asbestos, it may be notifiable and it may need removing or encapsulating by a trained specialist who has to notify the HSE that they're carrying out the work 14 days before they start. In an ideal scenario, by the time you get to tendering your work, there will already be that refurbishment and demolition survey in place and then you can price accordingly and probably exclude anything to do with asbestos to remove that risk from yourself altogether. When you're working on any existing building, there's an element of the unknown. The information that you're working with is only as good as the surveys of the existing building. When you're working on a much more modern building, particularly after the introduction of CDM regulations, you do have those O&M manuals and as-built drawings that you can rely on. And whilst these were sort of par for the course before that, some of the older buildings have less complete information and sometimes the onus wasn't there to document everything quite as clearly as we do nowadays. And sometimes those as-built records are in hard copy only format if it's a particularly old O&M manual that you're able to access. And one of the interesting and sort of disappointing things is that with some buildings, the building owner just doesn't take the care to keep any records of anything that they do to it. And something stands out in my mind working on an old university building. There was just IT cables everywhere and no rhyme or reason as to where they were going. In the current day and age where everything is done wirelessly, they're pretty much redundant. And I think you'd got Cat4, Cat5 and even Cat5e cables in various states of install and repair throughout the building. And just nobody got any record of where they were going. And then there was also this issue with the floor, in that there'd been a computer floor installed, or a raised access floor. It had been installed to a pretty minimal level, and it transpired all it was there to do was put an even surface over the existing floor when they'd reduced the number of internal walls throughout the building. And nobody had a record of that happening. So under that floor you'd got different states of floor finishes, and then you'd got these channels where the walls previously were, and on either side of the channels there were screeds that had been hand laid. And if anybody's seen these things in the past, tying in the screed from one room to another when a wall's been removed isn't necessarily straightforward because they can deviate significantly by the time you get away from the door. And all of these things can look sort of right and intolerance to the untrained eye and even some of the trained eyes. And it's not until you expose the surface that you start understanding the picture that you've got to deal with. So when you are approaching a retrofitting job, you've got to think of these kind of issues and think that the unknown is potentially all over the place. So when you're approaching these kind of jobs on site, you really want to have a supervisor that you can trust, or certainly good key workers on site that you can trust, and that you know will feed back to you information on discrepancies, will ask questions when things aren't where they're supposed to be, or when they discover something new and unforeseen. 
And you need to be prepared that there might have to be a degree of flexibility about the way you're working on site as you're waiting for queries to be resolved. And as a subcontractor, this isn't necessarily your problem. Of course, it depends on how the contract is set up and what basis you've been asked to price. So you've got to be particularly aware when you're pricing a lump sum. Have you been able to inspect everything? What are the unknowns that you're pricing? And if there are things that you come across, what is the procedure? So I would suggest that you start with technical queries and if you're working on NEC projects you need to have early warnings and that early warning process can be used to raise these technical queries using the right mechanism under an NEC contract. So ideally this will be your man on the ground who's able to raise those hence me saying you need that person that you can trust on the site. You also need to be aware of how many people you're sending in and how you're going to keep them busy and gainfully employed if you like and it's worth asking these questions either at a pre-start meeting or as part of your tender submission. Raise that you need to have that conversation, you need to set some parameters, you need to decide on how you're going to approach the programming of work so that there is like a hospital job available if something is discovered and stuff gets missed. You might come across you're installing a kitchen and you've got wall units to hang, but the area that it's designed, it was indicated as a blockwork wall, but it's actually a plasterboard stud wall. There's no patricing in there. So you've geared two blokes up to fire the kitchen in quickly in a day and now they're potentially going to be stood there twiddling the thumbs whilst the architect decides what to do with the design. So as I say it's worth having that conversation up front and saying when this scenario happens because it probably will how do you want me to deal with it because the last thing I want to do is have two three four however many men stood there on a day work waiting for information when they could be productively doing something and it's in both of our interests to make sure that there's continuity of work available for those unknown elements and if you've got a design scheme you should be able to start telling right from the start how good the information is because it should be identifying things like services that are on walls any changes in interface details, so if you're cladding, over cladding a wall with insulation and render, how does the relationship between the rendered wall now intersect with the soffit of the existing roof? What happens around the windows? Has there been a moisture assessment and a condensation risk assessment completed? Because the building's going to change, how it behaves is going to change, and you don't want to be there as a lump sum subcontractor being accused by a contractor saying, you're a competent subcontractor, why haven't you warned me that this is going to happen? So when you're tendering for this kind of work, you need to be looking at the details and casting a critical eye over them. And preferably you're going to visit the building, take photos of it, and then look at the drawings and say, are these things reflected on the drawings? So things like porch canopies, entrance lights, fire and burglar alarms, satellite dishes and telephone cables. Have these all been captured on the drawings? Are other people being asked to price them? Or if you start loading up your price with amounts to deal with all of these things, are you building in costs into the job that is going to make you uncompetitive? So the best thing to do in that situation is to ask the question, what shall I do with these items? Hopefully there is already a plan for it. And it might be the case, it's in whatever other contractor's package. But you want to see good design, good survey information, and good details. And you want the drawings to tell you what happens around the window, how the sill is going to change, how that soffit detail is going to change. If you're overlaying floors, what happens to the stairs? What happens to kitchen units and appliances and worktops and the likes? Are all of these being stripped out and reinstalled at a new height? 
Are there any things beneath the floors, i.e. maybe gas pipes? And if you board over the floor, is it now in an unvented space? So you have to replace the pipe or provide for a different kind of ventilation. If you're being asked to install ventilation in a building, one of the key areas of improvement is to install mechanical vent with heat recovery. The performance of that can be highly dependent upon the airtightness of the existing building. So a good question would be, have you tested the airtightness of the building and is there any plan to improve it throughout the course of the work that we're doing? And testing at the start or partway through the project could be something that you do or you suggest to the team as a good way to mitigate risk and improve the overall building performance at the end. And you've got things like leaky window seals, poor fitted windows and doors, little holes in the building and even things that are there and that are part of the plan but are just unforeseen ways for air to get in and out such as ducting, conduits and back boxes for electricals and it's these things sort of coupled with the element of the unknown working on an existing building that can really impact the performance of things like your mechanical ventilation and of course your heating. With existing buildings, there's always the problem with access. So you don't typically have a large loading bay and a large open entry point to a site, obviously once the superstructure is closed in. So what are the contractor's plans around creating that access? Are they going to take out a large window on each floor and provide forklift distribution? Are there lifts on site and are they suitable for use? Are they being allowed to be used by the client? Given that they are typically expensive and expensively finished, I've seen them shut off for the construction period. But is the cost of refurbishing a lift a beneficial investment when you consider that otherwise every single piece of material may have to be manhandled into a building and up the stairs before you can put it in place? What is the storage space going to be like? Can the contractor give you an area of the building, a room, whatever? Can they give you a garage? Can they give you space for a container outside? Or do you have to factor in the costs of just-in-time delivery? Or perhaps visiting your yard every morning to pick up what your workers are going to need for the next day? And of course that might bring with it its own challenges because then you've got to be able to plan ahead and make sure the right materials, the right fittings, all the little shitty bits that when you're doing that DIY project at home, you might have to visit B&Q for the second time to pick up. And again, it's that conversation about what do you need to price? Because you don't want to have to allow for things that your competition isn't allowing for. But then again, you don't want to turn up on site and the contractor think that you've got an all-in lump sum price to do everything, including the material storage and distribution, and have you both looking at each other going, who's moving this then? If you're working in an existing building, there are more than likely going to be existing occupants. And they, of course, present their own challenge. Each of them has their preference over what goes where. So you turn up with a drawing saying, this is what we're doing. And they say, no, I don't like that unit there. Can it go under the stairs or can it go over in that corner? There's also the noise and sound and vibrations from the construction work that you have to consider as well. I recall doing a project in a city centre office block. We thought we'd done a fantastic job of considering all the constraints. We'd arranged for labourers to port everybody's materials in from a loading bay which is on the side of the building. We'd arranged for everybody to dispose of their material in wait whilst you load skips or lorries. We'd have everybody bring in things just in time which was an increase in transportation slash delivery cost but it meant we didn't need to lose loads of floor space for working areas to storage. And what we hadn't done was liaise with the building manager. Day one of the job, as soon as we started drilling to put the first air conditioning unit on the ceiling, he came and stopped the work and said, 
you can't do that. Not in work time. This building sings. As soon as you make that kind of noise, the whole building hears it. Unkindly requested that we do any drilling works out of normal working hours. So we quickly had to come up with a backup plan of templating anything that needed to be fixed to the soffits. We got it all set out, plotted on the ceiling, or rather on the underside of the precast planks, and then we drilled for all of those fixings out of hours. I don't know what the project manager thinks about it now, but I think it actually made the job run a little bit smoother. But as well as that, you've got things like the access. Typically there's a few communal staircases within a building. They might be used for fire escapes. There might be multiple people needing access via the same entrance, lift, staircase, all of those things. Questions need to be asked in advance on it. Otherwise you end up with risks that you don't know about. And the more of these things can be solved upfront, the more certain everybody's price is. Hopefully the smoother the job runs and the happier the client, the happier the contractor and the better the prospect for repeat work and so on. And when you're working in these kind of live environments, you've got to remember those are somebody else's environment as well. And that means the number of stakeholders involved is more than any typical project. I'll share another anecdote on a tiny little job that I did at County Hall in Matlock where the work was to install a standby generator for the legal department which was to keep their server running, obviously in the event of any power cut. And it wasn't quite the smallest job I've ever done, but it nearly was, in terms of turnover at least. What it did have was the most stakeholders I've ever seen. The generator was located outside, the cable comes up the wall and through the building and through to this department. And we had somebody who was interested in how we were getting the cable in and what that should look like so that it maintained the look of the historic building. I had the client's overall project manager and then we had a representative or more from each other department that the cable ran through on its way from the entry point through to the legal department. There was our site manager and somebody from our subcontractor as well. Being that we were collaborating, it seemed the best thing to do to get them around the table and we could all talk method, how much disruption and upheaval there would be, how we could minimise it, what dates were the best dates when it would affect the least amount of people. And that took 27 people's time for the best part of two hours. And it wasn't even 50 grand's worth of work. But still, everybody came away happy. The subcontractor was able to price any constraints. The client was happy to pay for that if it meant keeping his stakeholders happy. And we had a simple job end-to-end, -end, which once we'd had that meeting, was quicker on site than it was in the planning stage. But that little example just goes to show how important the communication is and how speaking about these things up front, we got it right before we got to site, saved a lot of heartache, management time, and ultimately got into a situation where everybody could make their bit of money and go away happy. Utopia. As I said earlier, working on existing buildings, there are always bits of unknowns. There's some bits that can be worked around relatively easily, and there's those bits that you need to ask the questions about. And as I said, having the right man there able to assess what he's looking at, someone that you trust to ask the right questions at the right times, is key to making the jobs a success. You also got to take records. This wants to be site diary, photos, emails, notices, early warnings, technical queries or TQs that we mentioned earlier. You can do this all the old-fashioned way, or you can get one of these apps like SiteMate or SnagR, and they take pictures, and you can formulate those pictures into mini reports and just send them off to say, found this issue, what do you want me to do about it? 
The other thing, it is important to get these records whilst they're available. And I say that because a lot of sins can be covered up by a bit of plasterboard and a bit of liquor paint. And if you don't take the records whilst the work's open, then these things can all be forgotten about really quickly, really easily. And it can be a devil to get paid for things retrospectively when you haven't got the information. There's only one sign to take it, and that is when you find it. Okay, hopefully you've found that interesting and you've got something that you can action out of today's show. I'd really appreciate it if you do know somebody that would benefit from listening to what I've got to say, that you share the show with them. I'm trying to build my following so that I can help more people. And not only does it help me, it hopefully helps them too. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard and you want to learn more, please do find us at www.qs.zone where you can subscribe to our training support system for like-minded subcontractors. In there you'll find templates, how-to videos, interviews and more. And it's less than the price of a cup of coffee per day. You can cancel any time. We're also on all your favourite socials at qs.zone. Thanks again. I've been Jacob Austin and you've been awesome.